Hey, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 19 today. And uh, those of you who worship regularly with us, uh, I do want to encourage you uh, to be bringing your Bibles every single week. Um, And I encourage you even to be writing in your Bibles, taking notes, uh, all that good stuff. Um, And uh, if you want to pull up uh, Scripture on your uh, cellular uh, mobile device, that's fine too. Uh, Or you can bring uh, an iPad or or something like that. Those are all good uh, ways to dig into God's Word. But I... I do want you to encourage you uh, to really think about uh, bringing your Bibles on Sunday morning. Well, as Jeff said, uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Counterfeit. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, you know this key idea or concept uh, of a counterfeit. A counterfeit is someone uh, who uh, is a deceiver, someone who tells a lie. And the interesting thing about a counterfeit is uh, they never walk in the room and say, con artist in the house, right? They always walk in the room and the deception starts out uh, with a kernel of truth and then with a sleight of hand or a twist of scripture even, uh, things start to gradually move toward the deception. And so over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the most common uh, heresies in in the life of the church, not heresies out in the world or false teachings out in the world, but heresies or false teachings uh, in the church. And Jesus said, as Jesus' followers, um, that we ought to be careful. In fact, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. And of course, we all know that this means that on the surface, they look, they look pretty innocent. They look pretty harmless. But truly, not only are these teachers and these teachings, they're deadly. And if we're not careful, if we're not cautious, it's really easy for us to get duped into believing a lie. So that's why it's so important for you to be reading your Bibles every single day. And I know many of you are reading through the Bible this year, cover to cover. And you guys are discovering some new things, things that you hadn't seen in Scripture before, which is awesome. And I want to encourage you to not just read through the Bible, but talk with others about what you're reading uh, in Scripture, either through a small group or uh, even among uh, your own family members. But this is why we need uh, to read God's Word, because Jesus says there are con artists among us. So be careful. Be on your guard. Today we're going to continue our series uh, looking at the next heresy uh, or false teaching, which is uh, known as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. Uh, Sometimes this is called the gospel of health, wealth, and happiness. Um, Others just call it name it and claim it. And uh, which is kind of uh, an interesting way to remember it as well. So we're going to look at the prosperity gospel today. We're going to look at a text uh, from John 19. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, God, we thank you for today, this day to worship you, this day, God, to gather as your people. God, this day to open your word and to reflect, to be together. God, this day that we are so grateful for our moms, those precious people in our lives who have done so much for us. So God, with hearts full of gratitude and anticipation toward looking at your word today, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock 
and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, of all the heresies that we've talked about over the past few weeks, this might be um, the most uh, familiar heresy or false teaching uh, that you probably are aware of. Most of us have a little bit of idea uh, of what this uh, uh, heresy, this false teaching of um, the gospel of health, wealth, and happiness is all about. In fact, uh, many of these folks who are peddling this lie, we, we see them on TV. Not all people who are on TV, not all TV preachers uh, peddle this, but many do. And so maybe you've uh, seen folks on TV and they talk about uh, this prosperity gospel, if you will. Um, and there are just some different folks. I'm going to just throw out some names. People like Benny Hinn, Paula White, um, uh, Joel Osteen. Uh, is another one. Uh, there are many of them who, uh, they, they look really good. They look really shiny. They look really flashy on the screen. And, and their message is, is quite simply this. Hey, if you want God to bless you in your life, send us a check for 1995. And they give you the address, right? If you really want to experience the incredible blessings in God's life, just reach out and grab it. God wants you to receive those blessings and make sure you drop a check in the offering plate, right? It's, it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, we're going to give you some blessings, but God really likes it uh, when you uh, give money to a church or to a ministry. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, when our family lived in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, there was a, a pastor of a mega church there. He's on TV uh, in Georgia, probably other places around the country. His name is Creflo Dollar. Isn't that a great name for a pastor? Pastor Dollar. And uh, while we were there, uh, Pastor Dollar was asking every single person in his congregation, very large congregation, to just simply donate $300. Because Creflo Dollar wanted to get the gospel preached to all the world, and he really needed this $65 million jet. Apparently, Pastor Dollar doesn't realize that there are commercial flights available to get into all the world, right? But this is what happens. Hey, send in your money. Because God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And God wants you to have all these good things in your life. And Pastor Dollar, you know, like me, a, a pastor, uh, his net worth today is about $27 million. He earned that in ministry. From people in the pew just mailing in, sending in checks. And of course, he drives fancy cars, lives in a big mansion, has really fancy clothes, luxurious lifestyle. And then he looks at his congregation and says, you too can have this, what I got. Just send in a check. Keep the checks rolling. This is what God wants you to have. God wants you to be successful. You know, this idea of the prosperity gospel, uh, it's rooted in Scripture, in fact. Remember, we talk about this is where heresies come from. They oftentimes come from a, a kernel of truth. And where the prosperity gospel comes from is in 1 Chronicles 4.10, the prayer of Jabez. It goes something like this. Now, Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, that it may not pain me. And then here's the kicker. And God granted him what he requested. 
wants me to enlarge my territory. In fact, there was a few book a, a few years ago, a book that came out called The Prayer of Jabez. And some of you might have picked it up and even read it. And on the back, it says, are you ready to embrace what God wants to give you? And then over and over throughout this book, the pastor invites people to name it and claim it. What do you want? God wants to give it to you. And Americans have bought into this. I mean, that Prayer of Jabez book uh, sold 4 million copies And if the author just earned $1 on every single book, that's not a bad haul for writing a book, right? We see this all the time and how this heresy, this false teaching has crept into the life of the church. In fact, a few years ago, uh, Lifeway Research uh, did a study uh, asking churchgoers, Protestant churchgoers, hey, do you agree or disagree with the statement that God wants me to prosper financially? And 70% of Protestants in the United States says, yep, I think God wants me to prosper financially. Whoa. We're buying in to this stuff. Or, it's not just about money, right? It's also about a lifestyle. It's also God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be joyful. God wants you to whatever circumstances going on in your life, just to put on a smile. Right? Never mind your spouse just walked out on you. Trust in the Lord. Put a smile on your face when you're going through a financial hardship. Be joyful when you lose your job. When your kid isn't talking to you, just trust in God that he's going to make it all good and put a big old smile on your face. That's supposed to be your life. As Jesus followers, we're supposed to run around in the hills and shout yippee and hooray and God is good and God is wonderful regardless of what is going on in my life because I'm going to name it and claim it and I want happiness. I want prosperity. I want all things good in my life. We ask ourselves, how's that working for us? Because, you know, all those Bible verses that people will quote to you when you're going through a hard time, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When God closes a door, he's going to open a window. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Any of you have been quoted Bible verses before out of context, and you're like, are you kidding me? I was just diagnosed with cancer. You're really going to tell me to put a smile on my face and suck it up and be cheerful? See, the prosperity gospel doesn't work when we're going through hard times, when we're going through struggles. What the prosperity gospel does is we look at it, we hear about it, we hear preachers even talking about it, and then we get our lives filled with shame. Well, God must be mad at me. God must be angry with me. God must be punishing me. Because I'm not happy. I'm not healthy. And I'm not wealthy. 
What's wrong with me? There's this big chasm between what is preached, what is peddled as a false teaching of the prosperity gospel and the reality of our lives. So I want to look at Jesus' life uh, a little bit here uh, this morning. And as I think about uh, if our definition of the prosperity gospel is that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, let's, let's think a little bit about how this worked for Jesus. Jesus was born in a cave, dirt poor. Jesus died on a cross, dirt poor. And every moment throughout Jesus' life, he was dirt poor. Huh. Jesus failed the first test of being wealthy. How about happy? Jesus certainly shared moments of joy and laughter and fun with his disciples and, and the people that were around him. But let's not forget, throughout Jesus' life, he struggled says one time that uh, he was so stressed out of his mind that he started sweating blood. Remember the time that Jesus got angry and was overturning money changers in the temple? He was angry. What's wrong with him? He's supposed to be happy, happy, happy. And then we hear about and remember the time that Jesus' good friend Lazarus died. Jesus wept. Cheer up, Jesus. Put a smile on your face. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus didn't do very good with the prosperity gospel, right? And Jesus, we don't know a lot about his health, you know, the details of his health. But what we do know is that Jesus died at a very young age, 32, 33 years old. And the way he died was not very wonderful and beautiful. And it certainly doesn't fit in the gospel of health, wealth, and happiness. So Jesus fails the test. What about his mom, Mary? Well, Mary, um, first when she found out she was pregnant, uh, she was single. And then she had to tell everybody that uh, the baby was, you know, she's not married. She's got to tell everybody. Um, By the way, it's the Holy Spirit's baby. And we can about imagine the shame that Mary went through. And throughout her life, Mary struggled with, hey, there's Mary. She's that, the mom of that guy. Teenage pregnancy. The shame involved with that. And then we learn uh, when Jesus was 12 years old, uh, that's the last time we hear about Jesus' earthen father, uh, Joseph. And most scholars believe that Joseph died uh, shortly thereafter. And by the way, Mary doesn't just have Jesus to raise, but she's got several other kids. So now she's a single mom with some teenagers and some other little kids. By the way, Joseph, uh, he was a blue-collar worker. They didn't have a lot of money. So there's Mary trying to raise these Jewish kids, scrimping and saving and working really, really hard. And then Jesus declared his public ministry at about age 30. That wasn't very good for Mary's reputation either. Mary, are you kidding me? Do you know what your son is saying about himself? He thinks he's the son of God. Mary, get your son under control. Right? 
For three years, Mary bore the ridicule of all those who looked at the life of Jesus, and they scoffed at him, and they looked at Mary and said, Mary, your family dynamics are really messed up. Get your kid under control. But it got worse. Because remember that on that last week of Jesus' life, Mary was there. And Jesus was in Jerusalem, and it was a very public event. And in that moment, her son was declared an anathema, and he was condemned to die on a cross. And so there's Mary looking on, watching her son being spit on, beaten, publicly humiliated as he carries a cross out of town on his way to be executed. That was Mary's life. Happy, happy, happy. No happiness, little happiness, little wealth. We don't know about our health. So we get to John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there hanging on a cross, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the other disciple, he said, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Can you imagine moms pouring blood, sweat, and tears into your kids for 30-some years? And you watch your child publicly humiliated and executed on a cross. Yesterday, I stood next to a mom we looked into a coffin, her daughter. I can't imagine the pain that mom was going through. I think you moms, you get it. The ways in which you have poured into and loved your kids. I don't think there could be any worse pain that a human being could feel on the planet than to watch their child die. That was Mary's life. So we have to ask the question, how in the world did we get from the first century of pain and suffering and heartache and tragedy to the 21st century of wealth, health, and happiness. How did this happen? How did this false teaching make its way into the life of the church? I don't know this for a fact, but I have a theory. I'm just going to share my theory with you. I could be wrong on this. For most of human history, several thousand years, the vast majority of people who walked on this planet, I'll say 95%, they were poor. They were subsistence living people. There was just a handful of people who were uh, wealthy and powerful. 
And for the vast majority of our human history, most people, that's just what they did. Is they just, you know, were farmers and fishermen and, and kind of lived subsistence, hand to mouth, I guess, if you will. Nobody really thought to themselves, hey, I really want to move up to the middle class. Because there was no middle class. And nobody really thought to themselves, I want to be a king or a prince or somebody really wealthy. It just didn't happen. You had, to, you, know, you had to be born into that. And so there was this chasm where the vast, vast majority of people were poor and just a small handful of people who were really wealthy. In other words, it wasn't an option. Nobody was thinking to themselves, I just want to be wealthy. I just want to be happy. I just want to have what I want, what those people have. Because 95% of the population, they knew, they understood that life was hard. Because people died at a young age. There was a lot of disease, and people were poor. It just never dawned on people that they could move up to the middle class, or even upper middle class. But here we are in the 21st century. We live in a very affluent society. We live in a very uh, affluent world. And many people, you know, we're, we're middle class, right? Some of us are upper middle class. You know, at some level, we've kind of made it, you know, if you will, financially, powerfully, health, you know, kind of all those things. But then we've got the media and the social media telling us, you can have more. You can have more. You drive a Ford, you can drive a Mercedes, Right? And so all of a sudden, in, in our generation, we think to ourselves, I actually could have more. Where generations prior, they never even thought that they could have more or much more at all. And so I think what's happened today, and really in about the last 100 to 200 years, is that we become so affluent that we think we can have more. And the media and the social media tells us, you can have more, you can make it. Enter the prosperity gospel, right? Our culture, our society has changed such that all of a sudden, many of these things are with, uh, within our, our ability. Which even more interesting, I think, is we're living in a day and time where not only uh, do we have uh, health, wealth, and happiness in many ways, but we assume that we deserve it, Right? I mean, especially younger people today, we, we raise our kids this way. Hey, you deserve happiness. You deserve to have a certain level of financial living. You deserve to have a good, good health. You deserve to have a long life. We have come to expect these things. And the problem is, when we expect health, wealth, and happiness, and we don't have them, guess what? It's a setup for depression. It's a setup for anxiety. It's a setup for stress. It's a setup for us to feel like failures. And this is how we've raised our kids, folks. This idea of the prosperity gospel, it's only been around for about 50 years, if you will. And it's only getting worse with the newer generations. We've told them, you can have it all. And when they don't get it all, they can't figure it out and they're stressed out, and they're bummed out. The reality is, 
the default, the normal mode for what it means to be a human being to walk on planet Earth is suffering and pain. That's it. That's what life has always been like on planet Earth for human beings. Suffering and pain. That's the default mode. If you come here today and you don't feel like you're suffering or in pain, praise God, that is a blessing for you. But that is not normal. That is not the default of human life, the human experience. The default, what is normal for human beings, has always been suffering and pain and struggle and hardship. So we wrestle. How do, I, how, do I, how do I navigate all this? The reality is life is hard, and then you die. Should we close in prayer? true. It's the default mode. We're going to continue on because the Apostle Paul clarifies this a little bit and helps us to understand what does it mean to live in a world where the default mode, that what is normal to be a human being is suffering and pain, but at the same time to live in the joy of the Lord, the freedom of Christ, and the hope of, of the resurrection. How do we live in both of those worlds at once? How do we do this? And if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to uh, jump over to Romans 8. Romans 8. And Paul's going to talk a little bit about uh, this whole idea of suffering and glory and kind of how these things uh, go hand in hand. Uh, Romans 8, beginning with verse 17. Paul writes this, Since we are his, God's children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Hear that? We're heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share in his glory, in the good things of God, we must also share in his sufferings. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So what Paul is saying here, and I just want to remind you, those of you who are reading through the Old and the New Testament, when God created the world, it was good. Everything in creation was good, and then God created human beings, and it was really good. But in the Garden of Eden, sin entered, and everything became corrupt. Everything became broken. Everything fell apart. Things started dying. And this became the human condition since the Garden of Eden and the fall. And then what Paul says is someday things are going to be really good again. Just like back when God created the world, someday we will get to be in glory with God. Now, the image I put up, this is a little bit cheesy, I almost didn't use it, is an Oreo cookie. 
This was helpful for me to remember the human experience and the, 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 the life of the world. Chocolate cookie, it's good. Sinful red frosting in the middle where we live now. Chocolate cookie, it's going to get good again. Make no mistake about it. We are living in the middle. We're living in these middle times where things are bad. Things are falling apart. Things are broken. Things are dying. And I think one of the reasons as Jesus followers we get so confused and so frustrated of what it means to live and walk on this planet is we get these things confused. We think that this life is supposed to be good. We think that this life is supposed to be wonderful. We think that this life is God wants to prosper me, right? And again, if you're experiencing those things, praise God. That's unusual. Those are blessings from God. I'm happy for you. I get to experience those blessings too. But that is not the human condition. What is normal is pain and suffering. And so Paul's going to continue to kind of unpack this a little bit more to explain to us what this looks like. For uh, Verse 22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of the future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised to us. And so I want to just camp out on those verses for just a moment. I love what Paul talks about. He talks about the whole creation is groaning. It's creation. Sometimes we groan because we're exhausted. Sometimes we groan because we're tired. Sometimes we groan because we're frustrated. Anybody groaned recently? I think just in the name of Jesus, let's all groan this morning. Just there, one, two, three. Uh, it's creation. And Paul tells us that's you and me. That's the human condition. It's groaning, moaning. It's hard. If you've come to church today, or if you've been feeling like life is hard, welcome to what it means to be a human being. Life is hard. Life is frustrating. Life is full of struggle. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just talk about groaning. He talks about childbirth. Isn't that great? He talks about the, the, you know, the, the, the different, you know, the, the, this, is, this is the image, the metaphor that Paul uses in terms of this whole idea of, of the creation uh, through today and into glory, into the future. And he says, you know, guys, it's, it's all about childbirth. And I thought, that's really interesting that Paul, a guy, would talk about childbirth. I have never also uh, given birth to a child uh, this morning, and so I thought, uh, rather than me standing up here telling you all about childbirth, uh, I would invite all the guys um, to keep their mouths shut uh, for the next couple of moments. 
And ladies, I want you to, this is the participation part of the sermon now. Um, I want you to uh, describe to me uh, what childbirth is like. And let's just start um, with the first trimester. You just found out um, you're pregnant. Uh, you're in your first trimester. Ladies, um, describe that to me. What, you're, you're pregnant. What, what's going on? Nauseous. Exhausted. Throwing up every morning. Okay? Anything else? First trimester? Say it again. Scared. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, really good. Okay. Second trimester. How are things going? Come on, just tell, tell, tell like it is. Huh? You feel great. Okay, you have this kind of this rebound. I, I don't know that stuff. I haven't been there. All right. So, all right. Things get better. Okay, second. Anybody else? Second trimester? Excited? Say it again. Worried. Okay, good. What else? Second trimester. What's going on, ladies? Growing. Okay. Clothes still fitting all right? Huh? Alone. Okay. Okay. Good. Second trimester, anything else? Huh? Craving. Okay. What were you guys craving? Pickles. Okay. Okay. Very good. Anything else? Second trimester? Big Macs. Okay. Awesome. My wife, uh, I think she craved mashed potatoes. Okay. Awesome. Okay, good. Uh, Third trimester. What's going on? Come on, ladies. What's going on in your body? How are you feeling? Huh? Hard to breathe. Impatient. Huh? Your shoes don't fit. Okay. All right. Okay, what else? Third trimester. How are things going? Come on, ladies. Can't sleep. Okay. I mean, most of the guys, we're sleeping on the couch at this point in time already, right? You know, because we've been kicked out of the bed, right? Things are just a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, what else? Heartburn. Oh, my goodness. Okay, what did you see, Sherry? What's it say? More afraid. You know it's near. Okay, even more afraid. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, ladies. We're ending the third trimester. Then what happens? Contractions. They tell me. Ladies, describe the contractions. Come on. What? Huh? Ripping pain. Gripping pain. Okay, good. What else? To describe the contractions. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, so some of you ladies become potty mouth, right? Okay. Very good. All right. Yeah. Uh, you're just, you're kind of on edge. Good. Okay, what else? The contractions. Describe the contractions for us. They get worse. Okay. Describe how do they get worse. You think they're bad and then they're worse. Okay. Okay. Good. What else? Say again. Pressure. Okay. Good. What else? Long, lengthy. Long, 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 long. Okay. The contractions are building and building and building. Okay. Good. Hour, oh, hours and hours, okay, very good. I mean, the contractions are getting more intense, they're getting longer. 
just get it over with, okay? You know, I once heard a, a woman describe contractions like you take your lower lip and you put it over your head. And it's twice that much pain, right? Is that, is that anywhere near kind of how contractions... I mean, we guys just, we don't get it, right? So then you go to the hospital or wherever you go to have your baby. And you push. Is there more pain? More pain? Okay, more pain? And more pain? And more pain? So my question is, if having a baby is so uncomfortable, if it hurts so much, if it's such a struggle, why are there so many people in the world? I, I'm serious. How do you explain that? If, if it's such a horrible experience, what's going on? Help me to understand this. Amnesia. Okay. <laughs> Amnesia, I like that. Did you have an epidural by chance? How many of you guys wanted to have an epidural? Just being there watching, right? It was hard. But the truth is, we all know this. Through the pain and the struggle and the heartache and more pain and struggle comes new life. And in that moment, amnesia. Maybe not in that moment, but shortly thereafter, right? This is what happens. We look at that child. And ladies, you, look, you think to yourself, it's worth it. It's worth it. And you guys are thinking to yourself, amnesia. Honey, do you want to have another baby? If you say that and you're still in the delivery room in the hospital, she's going to stab you in the eye. And you deserve it. The amnesia comes later. When she's holding that beautiful little child, maybe weeks, months later. And she has forgotten, in many, many ways, the pain and the struggle. Paul says we're not there yet. We have not arrived. We're still in the pains of childbirth. That's where the world in which we live. We're not there yet. We'll get there as Christ followers. But right now, there are contractions. Right now, there is tension. Right now, there is pain. Right now, there are all sorts of emotional, hormonal things going on in our lives that we're just, we're frustrated and we're struggling and we're hurting. And some of you are in physical pain. That's the world in which we live. Paul says as in the pains of childbirth. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that we will experience later. So I just want to close this morning by saying this whole business of the prosperity gospel. Remember that? 
health, wealth, happiness, happy, 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 be happy, be successful, be wealthy. And again, if, if, if those, are, those are things part of your life, praise God, those are blessings. But that is not normal for what it means to be a human being. To go through life is suffering and pain. So beware of these false prophets who peddle this lie that this life is supposed to be good, that God wants something for you, something better in this life. Martin Luther said it this way, God can be found only in suffering and the cross. You know, maybe some of you know this, but one of the things that led to the Protestant Reformation is that Martin Luther had traveled to Rome during the time they were building uh, St. Peter's Cathedral. And he saw all the wealth, he saw all the opulence, he saw all the power structures, and he went back to Wittenberg and said, that is not the gospel. That's health, wealth, and prosperity. He says, no, no, the gospel is found in suffering and in pain. Because we live in a world filled with suffering and pain. But as Jesus followers, as people who have received Jesus Christ into our lives, it's not the end of the story. Glory is coming. Better days are coming. Goodness is coming. God will restore you and me. We'll experience ultimate freedom someday. And so that's how we live our lives, is in hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who is good and faithful. And that, God, you meet us in all seasons of our lives. God, we thank you for the many blessings uh, in our lives. I thank you, God, for the, the blessing in my own life of, of health. I thank you, God, uh, for the blessing in my life of wealth. I thank you, God, for the blessing in my life of joy and happiness. God, I thank you for the blessing in my life of having an opportunity to be in a, a position of power. But God, you didn't place, give these blessings to me because I deserve them or even because these are the things you want me to experience. It's the end point. Just give them to me. You give them to all of us, Lord, because you love us. You remind us that this is just a foretaste of the feast to come. God, I want to pray for People who are here this morning, tuning in online. Lord, we know that there's so much brokenness, so much sin in the world. So God, I want to pray for the person here this morning who's received a new diagnosis. The person here who's struggling with anxiety. The person here who's struggling with depression person here, God, who's struggling with a broken relationship, the person who's struggling financially, the person who's struggling with heartache, addiction, God, there's so much brokenness in this world, and we all experience it. 
But God, you promise us that this world is not the end. This is not all there is. There's healing. There is hope. There's new possibility through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, make us strong. Make us faithful. Just walk with us. Your presence. As each one of us travels through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.